0: And they talked about not wanting to see women come home in body bags from the front line.
1: Welcome to the podcast where we track down Australian war veterans, have a chat with them and hear their stories. I'm Alex Lloyd, and this is Life on the Line. The only thing I was scared of was failing with letting down the people there that I was supposed to support. Things
0: went south really bad.
1: You've got to have an element of crazy to be good at what we do. There was an My ego mind. attached to being a base item.
0: Being this around big, tall like trees, you. thick shrubbery, potentially connecting There's to other moments in his life yeah. Yeah. during There's battle. That is it's it's not
1: easy get out not knowing going to get blown off. You know we are part of The story
0: of transformation is powerful.
1: Jennifer Whitwer joined the Royal Australian Navy in 1981 as a Supply Officer. She went on to have an international career as a thought leader, humanitarian and advocate for women's rights, equality and empowerment. Some of her roles in uniform have included being the first ADF gender advisor to NATO operations in Afghanistan and a secondment to UN Women in New York. I spoke to Jen over a sometimes shaky Zoom connection. My apologies, I blame the ACT's topography and the NBN. This is our conversation about Jen's military career and women in the Defence Force. Jennifer Whitworth, welcome to Life on the Line.
0: Thanks, Alex. Great to be here.
1: Tell me, where did you grow up?
0: I actually grew up in Sydney, in the northern suburbs, a um, little suburb called Thornleigh, and my high school years were spent at Hornsby Girls High School, and my local beach was Mona Vale Beach. So that's the memories I have of... Uh, growing up in Sydney. Certainly our schooling was focused on academic studies and things like home economics and not not so much sport. I did play netball, which I think tends to be the choice of sport of girls back in those days. We'd go to Wiseman's Ferry to have barbecues and picnics and, um, you know, we'd go to the beach quite regularly. So we were out and about and that, very fond memories of growing up in Sydney with beautiful weather.
1: Do you have any military history in the family?
0: My parents uh, had both served in the Air Force. My father had been a pilot in the 1950s and the early 1960s. He was tragically killed in a flying accident in 1962. He was an instructor at Point Cook, and he and uh, an Army cadet who was under training were both killed. Mother had been a clerk in the Air Force uh, when she married my father in 1959. She was required to leave the service as they were back in those days. And I understand that my great-grandfather had also been in the army in the, uh, one of the light horse brigades during World War I.
1: That must have had quite a significant impact on the family, the accident with your father.
0: Yeah, it did. And of course, this is the early 1960s. There was very little support for widows. I mean, we got support from Legacy. There was a very limited support from the Air Force and she was required to leave her married quarter very quickly. So my mum packed everything up. She had my older sister and she was pregnant with me and she had to move to Sydney, get a job, find childcare for us um, and so on until we went to school. So that that was my recollection of my very early years. Uh, She remarried when I was about five or six and, and life changed. But I do remember her being, you know, a very strong and resilient woman. And I think she puts that down to her few years that she spent in the Air Force, um, which she still speaks very highly of. And of course, meeting her husband and spending a few years with him. They were very open about my father's background and his history. I was very much still part of his family. So I grew up with, with essentially his spirit around me. And I think that certainly their service was something that, you know, led to my decision to, to join the Navy.
1: This might be a hard question to answer with hindsight, but... Besides your father, do you remember what your perceptions of the military and military service people were when you were growing up?
0: Look, I don't think I really had any notion of what that looked like when I was growing up because we didn't uh, have any military family friends and we didn't. my mother didn't mix with anybody from the military after uh, my father's death. So we were sort of isolated from that. I think my decision to join was based primarily on moving into a career that felt that it was similar to the schooling that I'd had. I'd also had a reasonably sort of structured and regimented upbringing as well, too. Um, the Navy and also the, the uh, New South Wales Police is the two careers that I was very much interested in and applied for and actually got accepted into both. But I elected to go with the Navy.
1: And when is that that you join up? Um,
0: 1981. And it was actually into the Women's Royal Australian Naval Service at that time.
1: So tell me how much you knew about the Navy as a service itself going in? Did you have an interest in ships, seafaring, anything like that?
0: (laughs) This is going to sound very, very shallow, and I'm just going to put it down to being 40 years ago. No, my decision to join the Navy was purely because the women in the Navy were wearing what I considered to be the most military uniform of the three services. I knew nothing about ships, and I think that was very evident from the selection panel, where they'd ask me you know, questions about ships. And I really, I really didn't even know the difference between a bow and a stern. Of course, back in those days, women didn't serve on ships. They didn't deploy I don't think there was a necessity for us to know much about ships at that stage. And, and of course, women had only been sort of really transitioning into logistics as the primary employment role that was available to young midshipmen at that stage, only for two or three years before I joined. So I'm not even sure the Navy had any idea as to what would transpire ultimately with women serving at sea in a whole range of jobs. I don't think there was much need for me to know much about the Navy other than I was just aware that it was a very structured environment, that it was military, that I'd wear a uniform, that I'd have to say yes, sir, and no, sir, because there were very few mams around. And that's really, I went into it very, probably very blindly, but with my eyes wide open
1: especially to see the fashionable options on display.
0: (laughs) Yes. At that time, the women army officers were wearing a a uniform that uh, had been designed, I think, by an Australian designer, but it was very much like an airline, what we used to say, an airline hostess uniform. In my view, it was very unattractive. It didn't look very military, so that's why I elected to go with the Navy. Again, I don't think that I really had much idea when I first joined that it was going to give me some really fantastic opportunities and adventures, even without going to sea. So I would say at least in the first 10 years, I mean, I did things like uh, I walked the Kokoda Trek in 1986. It wasn't commercialised like it is now. The only people that would normally do that trek were military personnel. And my understanding is I'm actually the first female military person to do that trek. So I didn't really know that I would have these kind of adventures. So yes, it was just really going into a, I guess, into a profession. I was um, a logistics officer. I knew that I'd get some good skills and qualifications in that area or eventually when I decided to transition out. And I just expected just to go to and serve at bases doing logistics roles. I didn't expect, to, as I said, to do some of the, the really exciting things that I did get to do over the course of not only just the first 10 years before it changed and women were able to serve at sea, but ultimately over, you know, what's nearly been a 40 year career.
1: Let's just stick with your training period for a moment. Do you remember your time at the Naval College?
0: Yes, I do. And look, I still look on it probably more fondly than otherwise. It was an interesting time because it was pre the Australian Defence Force Academy. It was where a young male midshipman would live almost like a boarding school environment. They were doing either a diploma of applied science at the Naval College or they were studying engineering at the University of New South Wales in Sydney and would come to the Naval College for various Navy training. Throughout the course of each year would be two entries of what we used to call supplementary list officers, who would be young women and men who were joining directly to train in their employment occupation, or they would be ex-sailors who were uh, transferring to officer. And so we would join and we'd only be on a short service commission and we would do our training. It was about nine or 10 months. And so it was an interesting dichotomy between a class of a young, about 40 uh, men and women, of, of which only eight were women. Some had backgrounds as ex sailors, some had previous jobs and had come in a, in their mid-twenties, and some were straight out of school like I was. We could see that we were very different to the young male midshipmen who were there doing, you know, who were there on a permanent basis, who had come there as 17-year-olds to do their Diploma of Applied Science. And it was also only, it had only been a couple of years since we'd moved training of women from HMO Cerberus in Victoria to the Naval College. So I think it was still, the Navy was still on a bit of a learning curve. All male midshipmen were required to double around the Naval College, which is a sort of like a somewhere between a fast walk and a jog, but the women weren't. It was our class actually where they decided that women would start doing that as well too. And so when we started to just do as our male classmates were doing. So I guess that was the start of trying to bring us in line with what men were doing. So looking back on it, it was certainly a very interesting time. There were some difficulties. We were required to complete task books. These were being managed by senior midshipmen. Their cabins would have you know, pornographic pictures on the wall. Sexist jokes were common. There was that kind of that, and also that sort of leering behavior and young people's behavior, I guess, in a cloistered environment, which wasn't overly comfortable. But in any event, I just, you know, head down, bum up kind of approach and got on with what I had to do and graduated when I was, you know, the time came to graduate.
1: Because as you alluded to, this is a real steep Learning curve for the Navy at this point because they're starting to mix the services. The separate Women's Service has been disbanded recently. And correct the timeline if I've got this wrong, but I believe this will be just after the Sex Discrimination Act was passed as well. So they're essentially throwing you in a melting pot together and stirring.
0: Yeah, exactly. So it was 1984 when the Sex Discrimination Act came in, which then of course required the Women's Services to be disbanded. So it was the end of the Women's Services as we knew it, and it was very much what you just described there: add women and stir.
1: Tell me about your first few years out of the college before you finally get a seafaring deployment.
0: It was very much uh, just a traditional logistics pathway. I was at H.M.S. Cerberus in 1982 doing my basic supply course, which was employment training I was required to do, and then up to Sydney and NARA to complete a task book, and then just on to some normal postings in bases. And this was really up until the early 1990s, before they lifted the gender restrictions on women serving in combat-related roles, which then opened up uh, positions at sea. And that's uh, that's a really another phase of my life from about 19. 93 on. But I guess the first 10 years were really spent doing uh, just very basic logistics jobs, the kind of experiences my male colleagues would have as well too. But for them, they'd do a shore posting and then a sea posting and a shore posting and a sea posting, whereas we were just delegated to shore postings. But I really had some wonderful experiences. A highlight for me was two and a half years as the deputy supply officer at H. Mason Rimba in uh, Quakers Hill in Sydney. It used to be the establishment where we trained our technical apprentices. It no longer exists. There for up to four years doing their technical training and trade training and we had numerous sport and recreation clubs to keep them occupied and I ran a horse club while I was there. We had about five horses and I had a number of apprentices who would, you know, help me run that and keep that operating and look after the horses. So it was really kind of unusual things like that, that actually, I think really made Navy life, even though it was shore based, very enjoyable for those that obviously wouldn't experience sea service or didn't expect to experience sea service.
1: Well, that then gets to turn around for you. Tell me about when you were first posted on a ship finally and How exciting was that for you after years of sort of being kept landlocked?
0: I'm not sure that exciting is the word that I would use. It got to a point where in the early 1990s, as they were doing this, and again, look, in my view, it was still a bit like adding women and stirring. I I don't believe it had really been thought through. It meant that we were putting women at sea who might have been, as I was, 35 when I went to sea. And worse for me, being the head of the logistics department, so one of the senior leadership team of the ship, expected to know what I'm doing. In all respects, but not not having had the benefit of, you know, sea time as a junior officer that my male colleagues had had. Almost a frightening experience, but it was clear to me in the early 1990s that if I wanted to get promoted to commander in competition with my male colleagues, that doing a charge supply posting at sea and one ashore as well was definitely a requirement. I completed a charge qualification board in 1993, along with another female colleague that I had joined the Navy with. And we ultimately became the first two female supply officers to serve at sea as charge supply officers in the period 1995-96. She served on HMAS West Australia, which also has been decommissioned. And I served on HMAS Swan, which was a Vietnam War destroyer escort. Something that I was very wary of going into, because what we didn't want to happen is for us to fall over or fail. And then, of course, people say, well, you know, this is why you shouldn't have women at sea. So it it was a very trying time. But ultimately, my service on that ship, of which I was only one of two women in a crew of 212, and while I did also have some difficulties with some attitudes from some of the males on the ship, it was a very rewarding experience for me. And one that I'm glad that I did take up, ultimately. I certainly place a lot of value on what that experience gave me. Just in terms of progressing my logistics experience, I was also the helo control officer and I was also the nuclear, biological and chemical defence officer. So these were all new things to me. They were all challenges. They was something that I believed that I did well and I enjoyed that posting. And as I said, I got a lot out of
1: it. You mentioned just then two of 212 in the crew. Compare that to working on a base Back on the mainland, what was the ratio like there? Because of course, it is a new concept having women serve on ships at this time, and you can have all eyes watching. But I'm just wondering how familiar would other sailors be with having women in the navy by that point, and how sort of much of a transition that was.
0: I don't know the actual percentage of uh, sure. portion of women at that stage. I do know that I joined women prized about seven percent. In 2012 or 2013, it was about 13%. So it was probably somewhere in the middle. There weren't really a lot of women. I recall when I joined that that eventually after I got promoted to the first rank and I was actually working, all the female officers actually knew each other. There were so few of us. I think there was only, you know, less than 2,500 women in the Navy at that point, And certainly all the officers knew each other. I think the issue was more, and certainly I never had any trouble with the men that I worked with on the bases. I don't recall. But I think it was more that they saw ships as a bit like sort of the last male bastion of Navy service. And because they had always traditionally been male only... Whereas on shore bases, while we had been previously part of the Women's Royal Australian Naval Service, we had still served with our male colleagues, uh, you know, since World War II on bases. So women had always sort of been part of the landscape on shore bases. for our ships, that was the sort of that, that last bastion of the, you know, the male domain.
1: We've both made reference to the concept of adding women into the melting pot and stirring. Can uh, get you to elaborate on actually why you found that to be an ineffective means of integration?
0: What that sort of really does is that it just says this is the standard or this is the organization we have or this is the, the way that we operate and it's going to add you in and you have to adapt. And of course, we've had some difficulties with that over the years, for example, you know, putting women on ships at sea. We've learned since then and where we've made changes in our combat roles, for example, we've done it differently. The problem is, is that that then sets this or has this perception that there are these set standards, which, are, of course, our male standards and that women have to meet those standards in order to be seen to be equal. And that's the way it's always been perceived. Instead of perhaps a more transformative approach where the organisation might say, "Okay, we have women and men serving and other diversity as well, too, I might add, we're not just talking about women and men. And then how does the organisation adapt to that? And I think that at the moment, the current generation, the, the 2020s is going to be a time where we actually do have to adapt to a changing population, their different backgrounds, their different ethnicities, their different approaches to work. These are all things, all the diversity of our people in Australia that we need to take into account. If any organisation continues to operate the way they did 20 years ago and expect people to adapt to it, I think that's the wrong approach. We have to continue to evolve organizations that actually evolve more with the diversity that comes in is better than this notion that keep doing the things the way we've always done them and that women have to meet those standards. And that can be as simple as, for example, there's always been this ongoing myth or perceptions that to be equal, women have to do the same annual fitness test as men. And yet there is, you know, research that plenty of research out there, especially from the US that's worked with the US military that shows that men and women can be equally fit but they have different pathways to get there or they might have different standards to reach because of the different physiology. And so these are just common sort of misconceptions about when we talk about equality for women and men in our organisation, that it's been about women adapting to men's standards. You know, some people just seem to be very fixed on that notion that we have to adapt to those standards as opposed to perhaps the standards being changed in order to accept more readily the different diversity that we require now in our organisations.
1: There's sort of two concepts there I want to jump on and explore more before we continue with your story, if that's all right, Jen first being as you say this you're not evolving the organization if you're just saying here is the status quo and adapt to it and i think even take out the concept of you're having to adapt because there's new blood coming in or a new form of diversity coming in or what have you it's just not healthy for any kind of institution to just simply be static and never change or evolve anyway
0: yeah and i think that you know in 2020 there's plenty of examples now for organizations to look at and go. That's not the approach that we should take. Perhaps we should do things differently. I think from what I've seen of Navy over the last, it did evolve. And so while it started with this notion that, you know, women just transferred into the men's service, women couldn't serve at sea until they lifted the gender restrictions on combat-related roles. Women couldn't serve in combat roles until they lifted the restrictions in 2011. It's continually evolved. What's also evolved is the culture of the organisation, and that has been done through targeted cultural reform programs. It hasn't happened naturally. And so any organisation that has been historically or traditionally one gender which seeks now to change, to take both or others, other genders, actually needs to look to the lessons learned by other organisations. And definitely for us, undertaking a very targeted cultural reform program that looked at things like our leadership, how people lead, what training we give people to become leaders, what are their behaviours in the workplace, how we're assessed on meeting Navy's values, how the Navy was actually even structured to make the best of the people that we have and the diversity we have, the capability that we have, and what's the best operational outcome for us. This was a program that started in, in about 2009, New Generation Navy. It's still ongoing. So clearly they're seeing this need to continue this program identify those spots perhaps where they haven't touched on before and continue to make the organisation a place that is becoming more adaptable to different genders, to people's different sexualities, to people's diversity. And I have seen that physical change occur. My perspective is to organisations now that really are trying to evolve from an old model into a new one, take the lessons that they can see from other organisations and do them without making the same mistakes that we might have made.
1: If you look back historically, you'd hear all kinds of and I'm talking decades and decades and decades, you hear all kinds of counter-arguments as to why women shouldn't serve in the armed forces, as one example, and all sorts of reasons I won't even bother listing. But the um, main counter-argument I might hear still about that these days in regards to more combat roles or special forces, or as we are just talking about physical entry testing as well, common counter-argument I hear, and I'm sure you've been posed this question before, is that soldier falls on the battlefield. They need to rely, every person around them can pick up their colleague and drag them to safety sort of thing. And You have to meet objective standards to be able to do that. That's the classic counter argument I hear based on what you just were saying then about applying different standards to the different physiologies. How do you respond to that?
0: You're right. There's a a bit of a dichotomy here, I suppose. But when you're talking about physical standards for special forces, for example, and they are, of course, the troops that we deploy to actually engage in fighting, in operations, Of course, there are specific physical standards that are required to be met, and not all men can meet those standards, and there might be some women that can meet those standards. Whatever the requirement is in terms of the criteria for a specific role, of course that needs to be met, and how they assess that is up to the organisation. So of course, we don't want problems on the battlefield, if you still want to call it a battlefield, where people feel they can't rely on the person next to them to assist. So that, of course, is absolutely necessary. And the trust that we put in each other and the teamwork that we have in any situation is of utmost importance. So definitely that needs to be met. If I just get back to this uh, notion that for lots of reasons, women shouldn't be on the front line or shouldn't be in combat, there are a couple of things there. One is, of course, if they meet the physical requirements, then of course, they should be there, as should men, if they can meet the physical requirements. Requirements. Secondly, it is of course to meet law around equal opportunity. Now, this is not just for political correctness sake. This is saying that this role, a combat forces soldier for example, is open to both women and men. It therefore meets our national laws relating to equality and equal opportunity. It doesn't mean that there's going to be a bunch of women who will try to join combat forces but it is about just saying that both women and men have the opportunity to apply for this role if they wish to. And then, of course, if they meet the criteria. The second thing is is that I remember when the restrictions were lifted on combat roles in 2011, there was a lot of older people's perceptions about what that would look like. And they talked about not wanting to see women come home in body bags from the front line. And there are a few things I'd say about that. Firstly, that really there is no front line anymore. We don't have the sort of the traditional fighting that we did in vietnam or world war ii much more sort of covert operations and and i'm not an expert on combat forces so i'm not going to speak to what they do but the reality is and i faced this when i was in afghanistan in 2013 where i was deployed as a gender advisor i was a navy officer i was working in a nato environment And I had to travel from my basic Kabul airport into the green zone twice a week in a convoy of armoured vehicles, wearing and carrying two weapons and being prepared to use them if I had to, and knowing a number of NATO convoys that had been blown up and NATO personnel had been killed in car bomb attacks. And so the reality was, was that even if I was there as a Navy officer and as a gender advisor, that I still could have been killed and I'm not on the front line per se. I'm just part of a train, advise, assist force there to help the Afghan government and the Afghan people. And I could have died and been brought home in a body bag, but I was not fighting on the front line, if you still think there's a front line. So I think we've got to be realistic about the sort of roles that we now deploy to. The requirement to actually have mixed teams of women and men is really important and it's well researched. There's a lot of literature out there that talks about better operational outcomes when you have mixed teams or when you have the diversity that actually reflects the communities to which we deploy. And we could, you know, have a very long conversation about what those benefits are. But ultimately, we need both women and men and some other diversities, of course, speaking the language, for example, of the country that we might deploy to is also very helpful. So we need those different diversities in our teams in order to better to respond to the situations that we might find ourselves come up against in those deployed areas. Absolutely.
1: Absolutely. And I'm going to jump us back into your personal story here because we've got right into some of the meat of the subject matter already. So I want to talk about how you made that transition from being Nail Supply Officer Logistics to working in this gender diversity field, what prompted the change and your journey through that, essentially? It
0: came at the right time and I was in the right place at the right time. But for me personally, my journey, particularly around supporting women and wanting to be part of any change that our organisation would go through that would provide more meaningful opportunities for women, really started back in 1982, when I was the victim of a sexual assault. And I'm very open about it because it's on the public record. I've been through the DLA Piper and DART review process. I've spoken about it publicly because for me, while I don't labor the point that it actually occurred, and it occurred to a lot of women and men, and of course it had dire consequences for some, for me, I took it as there was a silver lining in this. And that for me was that I wanted to help ensure that other women would not experience the kind of things that I experienced. So I mean, there was, you know, a lot of sexual harassment, for example, a lot of propositioning, treating women as though that they were just there as sexual objects, regardless of the job or the rank that we held. These were all sort of the cultural and attitudes and behaviours of the men in the environment that we were working in at the time. Not all men, I have to say. Hashtag not all men. All right, I agree with that. But look, that made for very difficult times. But for me, I really wanted to, you know, be part of any change that was going to address that and make women's experiences much better. And so there was a couple of touch points in the, particularly in the mid-1990s when Navy uh, introduced a policy around good working relationships and they were starting to train up uh, men and women as advisors to help men and women who might've been subjected to that sort of inappropriate or unacceptable behaviour. And that was really the start of eventually the defence policy, which is now well and truly in place around unacceptable behaviour. And so there was an opportunity for me there to train as an equity advisor when it transitioned into defence policy and then it was around about 2002, there'd been some extensive reporting in the media around some sailors' behaviour overseas, both at Christmas Island and Diego Garcia, which is a little island in the Indian Ocean. Behaviour by our sailors on our ships that have been visiting and so the Navy had actually deployed me and three others, Air Force group captain, an Army warrant officer and another Navy lieutenant, across to Diego Garcia to do a quick investigation into the allegations that had been made there. And it was about just a poor behaviour, not specifically against women per se, unacceptable behaviour in public. And so from that arose the opportunity to take up a new position as a director of Navy organisational culture. So the Navy had decided that it wanted to see if it could reinforce its values, its mission, how they could get people to observe those values and, and act in that way. And so this was really probably the start of Navy's cultural reform journey. I worked in that role for a couple of years. I then took five years out as a reservist because my oldest daughter decided school and I wanted some flexibility around spending time with her. And I continued to work as a reservist for five years. And then the opportunity came to come back into full-time service and back into that Navy organisational culture role. Nobody else wanted it. And I thought, well, it's work that I really enjoy. It's talking about cultural change. And this might give me an opportunity to to do something different. So I took that role again. In that role, I had a very supportive Deputy Chief of Navy, Rear Admiral David Thomas, who supported my ideas of creating some programs that would assist women. So a women's leadership program, a networking program and a mentoring program, which were all designed just to provide individual professional development opportunities for women not necessarily attached to any uh, pathway to promotion or any pathway to specific roles, but just to give them the confidence to continue to progress their careers. So we did that. And so that, I guess, was really the start. And then as it's outlined in my book, there's really has been just about eight or nine opportunities and roles that just evolved from each other and rolled into each other. So it's it's really quite a, a long journey. It's over about sort of 11 or 12 years now. But essentially from that role, I then moved into the team that was developing the New Generation Navy Culture Reform Program that I mentioned before. That evolved into another inaugural role where I was appointed as a strategic advisor to the Chief of Navy on women's participation in the Navy and how we could develop and support their leadership development. So this notion of giving more time and attention to women's recruitment and retention was being advanced. Parallel with the work we were doing in Navy, Elizabeth Broderick, the previous sex discrimination commissioner, had undertaken her review of the treatment of women in the ADF. And so I was responsible for implementing that within Navy. In that role also, I had exposure to the NATO Committee on Gender Perspective, uh, which is really where I learned about gender advisors in NATO operations, which were, of course, at that time, just Afghanistan and Kosovo. That led into being selected as the first ADF person to deploy to Afghanistan as a gender advisor. And then in that role, gave me the skills and the knowledge to then come back into another role that was created for me to lead the ADF implementation of the Australian Government National Action Plan on Women, Peace and Security, a United Nations Security Council Resolutions on the role that women play in conflict prevention, management, and resolution.
1: I'm sorry, actually, Jen, before we go to the National Action Plan, I want to roll back. Can you tell me a bit more about your experiences in Afghanistan, what you were seeing there, what you were doing there?
0: My role was as a gender advisor, which uh, was a role that had been established by NATO in response to the United Nations agenda on women, peace, and security as a means to assist a commander in implementing those resolutions as part of a commander's plan for the operations. So right from the top levels of NATO through to the administration of the operations in Afghanistan, the official plans for that operation included the requirement to think about gender in our operational space. And that was twofold. One was around how we think about our operational responses and actions in a community that of course has women and men and girls and boys and how we respond to their different needs and concerns. And secondly, also about how we deploy and who we deploy to operations. And as it goes back to the comments I made before about mixed teams and ensuring we have both women and men to be able to better respond to those communities. So these have been a twofold approach by NATO since the mid 2000s. And we've, of course, have followed suit with our National Action Plan here in Australia. So my role was to assist the commander in ensuring that our operational and our planning spaces were including gender perspective, that they were actually always thinking about what it is they were planning to do and how that impacted those in the local community and how we
1: best could respond to the requirements. So would this be applicable not just on terms of how we are functioning within our own units, but also... I guess, hearts and minds in those particular contexts in Afghanistan in that year, also influencing how we're interacting with the local population, that kind of thing.
0: Absolutely. Because one thing I like to say, and it's quite true, is that women like to talk to women.
1: That is very true. Yes. It
0: doesn't really matter which country or culture or context you're in. And so what we found, what NATO found very early on was that women in the NATO forces were able to get really good information and intelligence from women in the community, because they could talk to them. Whereas the men... The NATO forces weren't able to talk to women and girls in those local communities. And that's just a very basic example of how gender perspective is really important. And of course, the women would talk about things that the men would not talk about. And the women also knew things and could provide intelligence, for example, on the location of armaments or other armed actors, whereas men did not share the same information.
1: Tell me more then about the implementation of the National Action Plan after your experiences in Afghanistan.
0: The Australian National Action Plan on Women, Peace and Security was actually released in 2012. So I was aware that it had been released. At that point, because there's people in in roles in defence change out all the time. And so in between the National Action Plan being developed, and then being released and out for implementation, roles had changed and and people were not as familiar with it as perhaps they should have been. And so there was a little bit of concern as to who would take carriage of the National Action Plan, where it belonged, who should be responsible for it, what did it mean? Which is why at that time when I was in Afghanistan, I was considered to be the only one who actually had any knowledge or experience around the UN Women, Peace and Security agenda, what that meant and what it looked like operationally. And then, of course, how I could bring that, that experience back to assist with implementing it within our organisation as well as within the operational space. So it was a bit of a a new area. It was something that people uh, misunderstood. A lot of people thought that it was part of Elizabeth Broderick's review into the treatment of women in the ADF. Now, I might add that her review, which was essentially around women's participation, is a very important part of the UN Women, Peace and Security agenda. And many militaries around the world are including that part the quality requirements, in their responses to national action plans as well too. But because we'd already had the Broderick review, that was being progressed separately and concurrently. We focused our national action plan efforts on how we built a gender perspective into operations. And that's primarily where the ADF has continued to focus its, its activities. Within the region, within our contributions to UN peacekeeping or NATO operations, we are required to abide by you know, certain training and standards that the UN and the NATO hold as part of our participation in their operations. And we have also included a gender perspective in, for example, the regional activities, exercises and so on that we might contribute to, you know, with other regional partners. And we are influencing their inclusion of gender perspective within their processes and
1: systems tell me about your journey from there?
0: So my role was very much at the strategic level. I worked directly to the Chief of Defence Force. I guess you could say my role was a bit like to herd the cats. And each service and each defence group had a representative who was responsible then for their particular service or group and to implement the National Action Plan downwards. And so I managed the development of the implementation plan, the implementation of that implementation plan. And I would look after, you know, the briefs for Parliament, progress reports and things like that. And obviously, you know, report to CDF on the progress and how we were going. That was my role. As part of that, there was actually a Navy Rear Admiral who was then the head of the Military Strategic Commitments Branch. Who came up with the novel idea of creating a secondment for someone to go to work in the UN. Initially, we were looking at the Department of Peacekeeping Operations, but ultimately it rested with UN Women to actually learn more about how Women, Peace and Security was being embedded into international militaries. So we created this five-year secondment, and uh, when I completed my role as the Director of the National Action Plan, I was the first person to take up the secondment. And that involved working in UN Women as a policy specialist on peacekeeping and sexual exploitation and abuse. Um, There were two areas that one was to look at the role and the numbers of women in peacekeeping, both military and police, and civilians as well as the integration of gender perspective into the actual conduct of military operations.
1: And sorry, this is on secondment to New York.
0: Yeah, sorry, UN Women Headquarters in New York. And the idea was that the secondes would get a much broader exposure to the whole Women, Peace and Security agenda, of which not only UN Women, but of course, Department of Peace, now Peace Operations, the old DPKO, and other UN agencies also shared responsibility for implementing. But UN Women has a very unique situation. They have uh, country offices around the world. There is quite a lot of work where UN Women is supporting the integration of gender perspective or gender mainstreaming into these militaries and police forces and other security agencies around the world. And so as part of my role I would be going to various countries. I went to Jordan, Abu Dhabi, Spain, Italy, conduct training, or I would be providing advice on how to mainstream gender into recruitment and retention, or how do we incorporate gender perspective into our doctrine on operational planning. So a whole range of different things. And the idea was that we would provide UN women with that kind of military background and expertise that they didn't have, because most men and women working in UN women come from either academia or non-government organisation or other government organisation backgrounds and not the military.
1: So you're providing a diversity perspective in a cell devoted to diversity perspective. (laughs) Yeah, I guess you could say that. (laughs) Tell me then, Jen, about your journey finally out of uniform and the path that's led you to becoming a debut author today.
0: I uh, came back to Australia in 2018, probably always knew over the last few years that after I'd been in New York that there would not be an ADF role for me back here in Australia. I had done the most senior role as a Navy captain, as the director of the National Action Plan. I had deployed to Afghanistan. I had had this a comment in New York. I understood that really I either made a decision to stay working in the Navy and probably go back to a logistics role or another, you know, sort of policy role, or I pursue my passion for equality and for women's participation and rights and the Women's Peace and Security Agenda. And I thought, well, I've made a fantastic international network. I've worked with people from academia, from non-government organisations, from other government organisations, from civil society organisations, women's groups, uh, women's activists all around the world uh, who are working on women, peace and security. And I thought this is the time for me to really leverage that. I was well known in the UN. uh, I was well known in NATO. I didn't think that I would really have too many problems uh, picking up the kind of work that I have been doing over the last couple of years, which is consulting back to them And almost doing what I've been doing back here in the ADF, but doing it for UN women in other countries who are supporting this work in other armed forces and police forces. And so it made sense to me to transition out the transition to the reserve forces which I've done but primarily working on this consulting work with UN Women and so in the time that I've been out uh, which has just been just short of two years I've worked with UN Women in the Ukraine on developing a training framework on gender and women peace and security for their armed forces and I'm currently working on a two-year contract with the UN Women in Jordan, gender mainstreaming across their armed forces and their other security agencies. And that involves helping them mainstream gender through their implementation of their national action plan. So again, all areas that are very familiar to me, but enable me to continue my purpose, which is to support women in the military. So that's, a, and I do some other work as well too. I, I write courses for the Peace Operations Training Institute in the US and really any other work that comes along, particularly for international organizations is what I'm mostly supporting. In terms of writing the book, I'd been thinking about it for a few years. I wanted to write a book. And initially, I didn't do anything about it because I thought, well, who wants to know? Who wants to read my story? And really, why do I think that that's important? So I didn't really have an idea of how I wanted to sort of, I guess, focus the book. And it really came to me last year. That there was so much that I was sharing with women that I was mentoring, uh, with workshops that I was running, with even just the consulting work I was doing in the international space. A way to bring it together, the strategies that I help women with in working in male-dominated professions, but using my story to support those strategies. And so with the book itself, it is about my story and my journey. And there are some low points and there are some high points. It's designed to just show where I say that this is what I did and, I, and how I achieved it, so in terms of a strategy for women. And this is just a story that demonstrates how that, how that came about or how I overcame that or how that changed things for me. And so I was able to bring the two together. So it's been a labour of love, definitely, for me to bring this together and to be able to share it more broadly than I was in just the individual work that I was doing. So that's really how the, the book came about.
1: Well, Jen, what is the book called and where can people look you up online?
0: So the book's called Against the Wind, How Women Can Be Their Authentic Selves in Male-Dominated Professions. It can be bought from mainstream online bookstores like Amazon, Book Depository, Booktopia, Demix, and so on. And also it can be purchased through my website, which is
1: jenniferwitwer.com. Thanks, Jen. And we've talked a lot about not just your career, but obviously using your career as a lens to this much bigger growth and evolution of women in the armed forces. And again, specifically more the Navy through your experiences. Obviously, it's an enormous amount of change from when you joined to today. Looking at the armed forces today, what's your outlook on the future of the ADF in terms of integration and diversity?
0: From the efforts that have been undertaken across all aspects of the employment life cycle, so from recruitment right through to transition. In many regards, the statistics are increasing and they're no more positive. And certainly, uh, more recently, decisions are being made to really target efforts to improve those statistics. So to improve the numbers of women that we recruit to what were probably previously you know, male dominated roles, so combat roles, because of that necessity to have the diversity that we need. Conversely, of course, we might want to look at how more men that we recruit into some of the more female traditional roles, such as nursing and health. So you want a more balanced, I guess, a more balanced workforce. And so I know that, you know, that they are now looking at certainly CDF, uh, the Chief of Defence Force is leading this look at best practice ways of increasing women's recruitment, increasing their retention. So how do we hold them for a longer period of time? understanding what the drivers are for separation. And while women's separation rates are currently lower than men's, they're still serving for less periods than men as well. And so we need to understand what those drivers are. You know, also need to look at how we can best support women during periods of non-service, which tends to be predominantly by women. Um, So, for example, home duties, family responsibilities, think we also need to look at how we actually encourage more men and this means systemically how do we encourage more men to also to be able to be take up some of those responsibilities as well too so it's it's equally men and women that are taking time out of the workforce for these kind of other caring responsibilities so i think that you know again it's a little bit like an evolving process so you know the adf is learning as it goes on and moves on they revise their targets for women's participation They are looking to progress more to a, I'm not going to say a balanced workforce, because that implies 50-50, but certainly a much greater critical mass than we have at the moment. So looking sort of in the 30 percentage range rather than sort of 18.6%, which is where we sit overall at the moment. Work in progress, as they say.
1: Jennifer Whitworth, thank you for your service and for your time today.
0: Thanks, Alex. It's been an absolute pleasure to be here today.
1: Thank you. We've already heard this season from a male gender advisor, Captain Alan Bretherton. Alan was interviewed by Sharon Maskeldare while he was on deployment to the Middle East with Joint Task Force 633. To hear his perspective on this role, listen to number 83, Dean and Alan Bretherton.
0: Two of my uncles had lost their eyes, one to infection and one to shrapnel. Everybody got behind each other and spurned each other
1: on. And for another conversation about serving in the Australian Defence Force in the 21st century as a woman, Jump back to season two and listen to my interview with a current officer in the Royal Australian Air Force, number 21, Cassie Collins.
0: As you fly over into the Middle East airspace, the captain makes an announcement like any captain on a Qantas plane. And I remember I was just sitting there looking down at my camouflage uniform, just thinking this is real, this is it, I'm finally here. Situation on the ground, it was nighttime, and you could see the explosives going off. And I remember just looking out the window with body armour and a helmet
1: you can subscribe to us in your favourite podcast app, on YouTube, or by going to our website and signing up for our free e-newsletter. Our website is www.lifeonthelinepodcast.com. You can also follow us on social media. We're on Facebook and Instagram at Life on the Line Podcast, and on Twitter at L-O-T-L-Pod. Life on the Line is brought to you by Thistle Productions, artwork by Big Cat Design, music by Dan Van Workhoven, Thanks for listening, and lest we forget...